Any and all views expressed in The Devil in the Details are entirely my own. Although I am a member of the Church of Satan, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Welcome to The Devil in the Details, I'm the Satanic Skeptic, and on this episode, I want to do things a little differently. This is probably going to be more like a mini-episode, and even though Halloween is coming up, it's not going to be Halloween-related. Uh, it's going to be about uh, an idea I saw uh, about a month ago or so uh, on a video on YouTube that was posted by Rebecca Watson, the founder of Skeptic, in which she discussed a study which came out, uh, I believe it was back in September, National Religiosity Eases the Psychological Burden of Poverty, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You can probably guess from the title alone that we're going to be talking about how religion makes poor people feel better about their lot in life. This idea isn't new. Marx, that's Karl, not Groucho, infamously said, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Anton LaVey presented a similar idea in the Satanic Bible, specifically the chapter Life After Death Through Fulfillment of the Ego, in which he wrote, Death, in most religions, is touted as a great spiritual awakening, one which is prepared for throughout life. This concept is very appealing to one who has not had a satisfactory life. All the major world religions have a sympathetic view of poverty. For example, Volume 5, Book 37, Hadith 4261 of the Quran reads, The poor are admitted into paradise before the rich by 500 years. Chapter 3, verse 10 of the Bodhicharya Vatara says, For those who are poor and destitute, may I turn into all things they could need. Chapter 16, verse 13 of the Bhagavad Gita, The demoniac person thinks, So much wealth do I have today, and I will gain more. And of course, Matthew 19.24, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All that said, Satanism is unique among religions in telling you that, hey, if money and material goods are what make you happy and are a measurement of your enjoyment in life, then you can have as much as you want. There's no shame in being rich. But we'll talk more about Satanism later. The prevailing assumption in the social sciences has been that, as nations develop economically, the psychological burden on people of a lower socioeconomic status would be eased. As a corollary to this, as people's suffering as a result of their socioeconomic status lessens, so too does their religiosity, the degree of their religious belief. The fact that, the United States notwithstanding, religious belief tends to be lowest in the most developed nations has always been thought to be proof of this. So, what you would expect to find is that people of a lower socioeconomic status in developing nations would report higher psychological burdens stemming from poverty than those of developed nations regardless of their religiosity. Recent research seems to indicate that the opposite is true. The burden of living with a lower socioeconomic status is less for people from developing countries than people living in developed nations, and the aforementioned study explored the hypothesis that religiosity might be a plausible explanation as to why. This hypothesis is not new. 
In their 2004 paper, Sacred and Secular, Religion and Politics Worldwide, authors Norris and Englehart noted that modernization and secularization do not necessarily lead to a concomitant reduction in the causes of social insecurity. For example, fear of violent crime, fear of illness or premature death, or fear of financial security. It's also long been recognized that, if you exclude the United States of America, which is an outlier and should not be counted, developed nations score very low in national religiosity, whereas developing nations tend to score very high. Several competing theories have sought to explain why this is the case, arguing either that secularization and the promotion of scientific literacy help to eliminate superstitious thinking, or that as secular institutions take over roles that were previously the domain of religious institutions, we see religiosity decrease. Norris and Englehart argued that, considering that people in developed nations do not necessarily experience less social insecurity than those in developing nations, personal insecurity might be a plausible explanation for differences in national religiosity. Exploring that hypothesis, Thomas Rees, in a 2009 study published in the Journal of Religion and Society, examined the correlation between religiosity, operationalized as the mean frequency of prayer, and national or multinational level indicators of personal security compared with the correlation between income inequality and the same indicators. Frequency of prayer was chosen as a measure of religiosity on the grounds that it was the least subjective survey-based measure. Frequency of prayer data was primarily derived from the fourth wave of the World Values Survey and supplemented with data from the International Social Survey religion, values obtained from 67 countries. Various indicators of personal security included life expectancy, infant mortality, abortion rates, and income inequality, data of which was all obtained from various sources. Bivariate regression analysis, that's analyzing two variables to determine the strength of the relationship between them, demonstrated that, across all factors, those nations with higher values of social insecurity also had higher than average levels of religiosity, as measured by frequency of prayer. Returning to the study we began the episode with, National Religiosity Eases the Psychological Burden of Poverty, the authors used three different datasets of 1,567,204, 1,493,207, and 274,393 people across 156, 85, and 92 nations taken from the Gallup World Poll, the Gosling-Potter Internet Personality Project, and the World Values Survey, respectively. Again, they found that economic development had a strong inverse relationship to religiosity, and that world religions uphold norms that function in such a way as to ease the burden of lower socioeconomic status. Now, I have some limited knowledge on statistics and research design, but I'd hardly consider myself qualified to judge whether or not someone's research methodology was sound. I'm an undergrad, not an expert. Fortunately, my friend Dave Schumacher does that for a living. He explained that, overall, the work seemed very solid. One of the biggest problems, though, and this was acknowledged by the researchers themselves, was that they were using self-reporting as a determinant of religiosity. Self-reports are notoriously difficult to control for. You just don't know whether the participants are giving an accurate assessment of what you're looking to measure. That said, I'm not sure how else you would be able to determine something like religiosity. More objective measures like church attendance probably stopped being a reliable metric back in the 1940s, and thankfully, we don't burn witches in the public squares or hold auto-defaze anymore, so we can't gauge people's religiosity based on their attendance for either of those. The research, such as it is, seems to suggest that religiosity is a primary factor easing the burden of being poor. Let's go with that for a moment. Let's assume that to be true. If that's the case, and this is something that Burkessel and her colleagues bring up as a concern, 
During times of economic crisis, such as, oh, I don't know, the past two decades or so, those non-religious people in developed nations who are impacted by economic instability are going to be hit the hardest. As social scientists expect national religiosity in developed nations to continue to decline in the foreseeable future, Burkessel and her colleagues note, The present results suggest that social scientists and policymakers should take note of the dwindling levels of national religiosity and the possibility that harmful effects of lower SES, socioeconomic status, will rise further as a result. The challenge will be to find alternatives to national religiosity to curb those harmful effects. Such alternatives will not be easily found because national religiosity exerts particularly powerful effects. Now, if you're a Satanist who's been wondering throughout this episode, why the fuck should I care, I would argue that this research provides us not only further confirmation of the pacifying role religion plays in people's lives, but also alternatively demonstrates how Satanism stands apart. Satanism already is an alternative to national religiosity, at least for Satanists. True, Satanism is a religion. However, it's not a religion that encourages faith or belief. Satanism demands study, not worship. Therefore, I don't believe it makes sense to talk about religiosity and Satanism. Perhaps some Satanists are more or less adept at applying the philosophy in their lives, but it's not a degree of believing in the philosophy or practicing the religion more than others. If you were a Satanist who thought the path to success was to perform more rituals to get money or escape debt, well, I wouldn't expect your wallet to magically fill with money anytime soon. In fact, if that's your way of thinking, you're not even a Satanist. That kind of thinking is why we get, and I've even gotten these myself, and I'm a virtual nobody in the Church of Satan. I can't imagine how much worse it must be for the administration. Th that's why we get these messages from people in developing nations asking, how can I sell my soul to the devil to be rich and famous and fuck all the people I want? Sorry pal, you've got the wrong religion. Why don't you try the jihadists? They're always looking for desperate losers to throw their lives away. Satanism is a religion that tells you if you're not happy with the way things are, you are the only one with any power to change it. Some things, of course, will be beyond your control, and it's up to the discriminating individual to figure out what they can change and what would be a waste of their valuable time and resources trying to change. But ultimately, it is your responsibility to make something of yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. No amount of praying or pleading is going to make a damn bit of difference. Whether or not you believe in utilizing the power of magic to affect change, it still comes down to the individual Satanist working to manifest their will into reality, not passively and apprehensively sitting back and waiting for things to happen, or relying on somebody else to do the work for you. As a Satanist, I'm not overly concerned about what happens to people in the abstract. I have a personal sense of fairness and justice, and I have empathy for people, but I don't consider it a moral imperative or my personal responsibility to go out and save the world or help as many people as I can. That doesn't mean I'm an uncaring ass who would never lift a finger to help anyone, but my immediate concerns and responsibilities are to myself, to my family, and my friends. That's my immediate horizon. Everyone else is on the outside of that. But let's stop for a moment and explore the question of, if national religiosity continues to decrease, and let's say it's a pretty safe bet things are only going to get worse, what could be done to try and alleviate the suffering of those with less socioeconomic stability? One popular answer, which I and I imagine all Satanists wholeheartedly endorse, is to tax churches. Most religious organizations, which the IRS loosely define as entities organized for religious purposes or for advancing religion, are exempt from paying taxes that both individuals and businesses are required to pay, like property tax and income tax. But if the U.S. government were to suddenly decide to start taxing churches, just how much revenue might that bring? How much are churches currently getting away with not having to pay Uncle Sam? 
According to sociologist Ryan Kagan, writing in the May 2012 issue of Free Inquiry magazine, it's estimated that churches get out of having to pay an estimated $71 billion in taxes annually. That's not even including the estimated worth for the property that religious organizations own, which is estimated to be around $600 billion. Would taxing churches be enough to help the poor? Considering that the total spending by the U.S. government for the fiscal year of 2021 has been estimated at $2,597 billion, no, probably not. It wouldn't even be a drop in the bucket. But, consider this. The property taxes that religious organizations don't pay have to come from somewhere. That would be the private citizen and other businesses, not to mention that those property tax exemptions drive up rent for all their neighbors. Whether you like it or not, the taxpayer, regardless of their socioeconomic status or religious affiliation, is subsidizing religion. In developed nations where national religiosity continues to decrease, one might justifiably wonder why we're still giving out tax exemptions to religious organizations, which increasingly play less and less of a role in the community. Why should the burden of supporting those institutions fall on the shoulders of believer and non-believer alike, especially when the non-believer of lower socioeconomic status is disproportionately affected? Thank you very much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed the show. If you liked it, please consider subscribing. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, blah, 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 blah. Also, big announcement, the current issue of Skeptical Inquirer magazine, the print magazine, features an article of mine revealing the not-so-chilling true story of The Exorcist. I was privileged enough to be featured alongside Ben Radford and Kenny Biddle, both of whom have written articles on the true story behind the movie The Entity. I'm really excited, it's a fantastic issue, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in it. Go look for it at Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy magazines or books, and you can check out the episode of The Devil in the Details where I go into way more detail about the story. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach out to me on Facebook at The Devil in the Details. If you'd like to read more of my articles for Skeptical Inquirer, you can find them at skepticalinquirer.org. Until next time, I hope everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. The devil of doubt calls forth mankind to challenge all things, question all things. May the Luciferian light of reason guide you on your way, ever forward. Hail science. Hail reason. Hail Satan. Hail Satan.